Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to a brand new week on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Today we're going to start um, what is going to be a series of programs that we'll do over the course of this year with important thought leaders uh, in Georgia and beyond. Um, We'll talk to government and political leaders. We'll talk to uh, religious leaders, people in in the sciences, in arts and culture and more. And the idea is to talk to people whose vision for what they've done with their lives and what they think the state of Georgia and the nation is uh, going to experience in the years ahead um, will be worth our attention. Um, Patricia Murphy joins me for this first of our shows today. And before we introduce our guest, Patricia, I want to say how very happy I am to have you here uh, today. We're going to talk to Michael Thurman in a minute, and I know he's someone whose career you followed for quite a long time. Yes, and I have always noticed that Michael Thurman has operated in a way that is very unique to Michael Thurmond, and I think learning more about his background will help listeners understand why that's the case. I think that's right. Uh, So let's get right to this. Um, Let me give you a little background. Michael Thurmond began his career in public life in 1986 when he was elected as the first African-American member of the General Assembly from Clark County since Reconstruction, and equally important, He was the only black legislator at that time who represented a majority white district. Um, Michael grew up in um, Sandy Creek, a rural community in Clark County outside of Athens. Uh, He was the youngest of nine children uh, in the family of Sidney and Vanilla Thurmond. Um, They were sharecroppers. Um, Michael attended segregated schools for uh, most of his early education. It wasn't until uh, uh, Clark County uh, established a consolidated high school later on in his career that he became part of an integrated school. He was uh, co-president of the student council in his senior uh, year there. Michael Thurman was one of the first African-Americans elected to statewide office when he became labor commissioner in 1988. Before becoming CEO of DeKalb County, where he is still serving, Michael established a reputation as a leader who could fix some of Georgia's broken institutions, including the State Division of Family and Children's Services and the DeKalb County school system. But he is also a historian whose books tell the story of Georgia's black communities. His latest book on the abolitionist Georgia colonial governor James Oglethorpe will soon be published. But if all that isn't enough, excuse me, Michael Thurman is also well-rounded in other ways, too. He has an undergraduate degree from Payne College in philosophy and religion, a law degree from the University of South Carolina. All that said, Michael Thurman... It is a real pleasure to have you with us today for Political Rewind. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Bill and Patricia. I'm so honored, really, to kick off this series. It's a unique privilege, and I'm just uh, delighted and thrilled and a little bit challenged uh, by this opportunity. (laughs) Uh, Michael, I want to start with something. uh, I want to go way back and start with something that we did not know until right before the show went on the air and Patricia and I were talking with you, um, your great-great-grandfather was a slave on a plantation owned by a man named Harris Thurmond. And that's how the family got its name, from the owner of that plantation. Tell us a little bit about that, because you've done the research. And by the way, that's fairly typical because uh, enslaved Blacks did not have surnames. It was first name only. 
Uh, no last names. And so my great-grandfather, Harris, uh, was enslaved on a plantation that had been owned by a prominent uh, wealthy planter in Oconee County, Georgia, whose name was Harris Thurman, uh, who had died in 1848. And at that point, my great-grandfather was just a younger mm -hmm. child. Uh, he was, quote-unquote, inherited by the son. And in 1865, Harris Thurman was there on that plantation. And he, of uh, course, I'm the, I am the uh, product of three generations of Georgia sharecroppers. My father, Sidney, uh, was also a Georgia sharecropper. What, what, tell us what, what that means. What was he doing? Sorry, well, let me just get that. What was he doing? Yeah, sharecropping replaced uh, chattel slavery. Uh, in America, that became the most dominant, predominant form of labor uh, in the South when recently freed Blacks uh, who continued to primarily live in the rural parts of the South and in Georgia uh, stayed on the farm. They were not landowners. And so what you did, you raised the crops and you shared it with the owner who was typically uh, a white person. Uh, my dad used to like to tell you, always told me, we crop more than we shared though, even though we were sharecroppers. <laughs> and it strikes me that you know, you seem to know more about your own family history, specifically which plantation your family um, goes back to. What were you told about your family history and your family's history as being enslaved? How? What were you told and how did that affect your identity growing up as a little boy, do you think? I, I owe a great debt of gratitude to Professor Rice at the University of Georgia, who spent several years uh, researching my family tree and the genealogy associated with it. Uh, up until he began to get involved, I didn't know much beyond my father and my grandfather. He traced it back to uh, Harris, who's the first known uh, ancestor, and that's how I became uh, aware of him. And then I did my, I continued the research with my older siblings and other relatives. And what do you think, when you did find that out, how did that land with you? I can't imagine finding out how connected your family was to the land that was so close to you growing up. Well, I have a very unique perspective on that. Uh, you know, I think there's a symmetry with people and land. Uh, I grew up on a farm. I can appreciate the fact that this farm really was a source of our, not just food, but also the source of our income. And my father was a very proud man. Uh, for most of his life, he did not own property, uh, but he took great pride in the work that he did, uh, raising cotton primarily, corn and vegetables. <clears throat> and his pride and joy, though, and you love this, Patricia, he was the vegetable route man in Athens. So the fruits and vegetables he grew on the farm and that he would come to Atlanta and buy wholesale, he delivered those fruits and vegetables around Athens beginning on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. So when you come out to a food drive, that's really an ode to my father, and I'm still carrying on the tradition here at DeKalb County. I think that's really interesting. It puts into perspective something that you've dealt with in much more your much more recent years as as the DeKalb County CEO, which was during the pandemic, you began a food distribution program, I think once a week, to make sure that residents in DeKalb who were uh, lacking in enough food were able to come and, and get help. So that goes all the way back <laughs> to the family Absolutely. days uh, in Athens. Yeah, once a month, so, and I still remember because I would ride on the back of the truck and deliver the items to usually women and some men who purchased from my dad, white and black people. And I still remember the joy and the appreciation people had for him. And I, I always tell young people before Kroger and Publix, that was the vegetable route man who would go door to door and deliver fresh fruits <laughs> and vegetables. And that was just a great feeling, Bill. So, Michael, you were born in 1953. Uh, you were the youngest of nine children in the family. As I said in the introduction, you went to a segregated school until well into your high school years. Um, what was uh, the uh, what was the world of that segregated part, Clark County, 
like for you as a little boy growing up? How did it impact your um, self-image and your uh, and how you viewed the world around you? Were you embittered by uh, segregation at the time? How did that land with you? It was completely segregated. And one of the things, I, I the first time I had a in-depth conversation with a white kid was my senior year at Clark mm. Central High School. The previous 11 years, I had no white friends, no interaction. Everything was totally segregated. And uh, it was uh, uh, sometimes uh, distressing. I noticed how people treated, uh, how people spoke to my parents from time to time. I One of the things I remember, you know, is uh, I guess it was Negro Day at the fair. Everything, the libraries, the, the county fair, you name it, doctor's offices, everything was segregated. And the, the thing that really challenged me more, though, was we were poor. And I did, never really understood how my parents, who worked hard year-round, every day, fruits and vegetables in the, in the summer, we sold wood and coal in the winter, uh, dad worked at the poultry at night, how could people who work so hard still not have adequate income to create, I think, a, 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 what we would call a good life for themselves and their families? So you got to uh, the integrated high school in your, what was it, your senior year when it was integrated? Or was it before senior then? Senior year. No, it was All right, so your year. senior year. Okay, so suddenly you're in an integrated school, and you become co-president of the student council. Uh, Patricia, I can't help but wonder if the politics in that high school might be quite similar to what um, we deal with today, which is Michael Thurman won the black vote <laughs> to become a co-student well, council president. <laughs> well, you know, in researching for this episode, Mr. Thurmond, I saw that, I heard you actually say that a speech you gave while you were in high school to your student body changed the way that you have always thought about politics and um, specifically the types of voters that you could resonate with. I'd love to hear about that speech. Oh, wow. Yep. You did your research, Patricia. <laughs> the first speech I've ever delivered to an integrated audience was that senior year at Clark Center in E.B. Mail Auditorium. And I can't, you know, it was issues that 18 year olds would be interested in. But when I finished the speech, all of the students began to applaud. And I noticed the white kids and black kids were applauding. And that was just an inflection point for me because then I began to recognize that I could provide leadership for black and white kids. But that was the first real experience I had where they responded positively uh, to that leadership. And I was so impressed. You know, it was just an amazing moment for me because having grown up in a completely segregated environment. And I want to say this, uh, my years in the all-black schools, uh, Bernie Harris High School was all-black. I, I love my high school. I really did. And we... Uh, many of us did not want to give up Bernie Harris or the segregated school. So it was mm -hmm. a real traumatic experience for me to leave Bernie Harris, the all-Black environment, and then go to Clark Central. And it, and it was that way for all of our kids. And we just celebrated last year our 50th anniversary of our graduation. And one of the things my white classmates and Black classmates say, even to this day, for 84 years, Clark County had segregated schools, and they left it up to a bunch of 18 and 17-year-old kids to literally change the course of history. And that was a heavy oh. burden. Yeah, it strikes me that we are still asking um, kids in school to really deal with the political fallout from decisions that grown-ups are making for them or not making for them. Um, do you remember what you said in that speech that might have resonated across the board with your classmates? Well, no, at first you tell a joke that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so that was, you, you know, some things don't change. Right. And uh, it helped, too, that, uh, you know, I believe it or not, Bill, I was on the football team. I was the smallest guy on the team. So I always and uh, my claim to fame was I was the backup to Horace King, who was one of the first blacks to play at the University of Georgia, first scholarship players who went on to play for Detroit. And uh, but just reaching out 
and it began to develop the friendships I had on the football team, the track team, and understanding is something I experienced even as a superintendent I, at Clarkson High School, Patricia. You know, it's the most diverse high school in the world, I do believe. And when I became superintendent, I went to a graduation ceremony there and I looked and the entire world walked across the stage, every race, color, and creed, every religion. And we speak 160 plus languages now in the DeKalb School District. And as I was standing there waiting and I was listening to all these 18 year olds talk, and no matter what race, color, 18 year olds are, can be some really crazy kids sometimes, right? And it sound, it, what amazed me was that regardless of their race, color, creed, they were all teenagers and they were enjoying music and laughing and talking. And that was very eye opening. Oftentimes, adults judge people first by race, color, creed, and religion. But this next generation is really evolving away from that and becoming much more open to diverse peoples and cultures. We should point out, of course, uh, Mike, that Clarkston is the center of one of the largest refugee communities in the United States. And, and so it's no surprise that there would be students from so many countries uh, at that uh, graduation, so many languages. Okay, one quick note. You talk about playing football. I thought your athletic skills at, uh, at Clark High School uh, were around the fact that you held the record for the 100-yard dash. Well, when you're small and play football, you got to be fast. That's the only way you survive. <laughs> okay. So, all right, let's. I, 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 we, we. I, there's a lot of there's a lot of ground. I, I think both of us would like to cover with you. So let me move forward a little bit. Here's a real basic question. You went to Payne College and you studied. You got your degree in philosophy and religion. So I'm curious what it was that attracted you to those subjects and what you learned in studying those disciplines that you carry with you today? My mother so desperately wanted me to be a minister. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and when I was a kid out in Sandy Creek, one of my favorite pastimes, because we didn't have neighbors. Our closest neighbor was maybe a mile away. We had a big rock in the backyard, and I would stand up and preach and do speeches and speak to the pine trees. And I would always pretend that when the wind blew and the trees started rustling, I could hear applause. <laughs> and my little dog would start barking. And I said, oh, that's the chairman of my deacon board. And so I would just do speeches for periods of time. And one day my dad told my mom, said, your baby boy, I think he a little touched. Boy, just get out there and preach. So I, my mom said, go to college, be a preacher. And so I majored in philosophy and religion. And um, great story, Bill. By the time I got to graduation, I realized I hadn't received the call to the ministry, but I had not told my mother. And they were coming the next week to graduation. I said, well, I need to fess up. So I called home <laughs> and I said, mom, there's something I need to tell you. I'm not going into the ministry. Actually, I'm going to law school. Phone went dead silent. I'll never forget it. So finally, she called my dad. She said, Sydney. This Mike says that he's not going into the ministry because he didn't get the call. I, my dad told us that he got the call, but he was just out partying and he couldn't answer the telephone. So the call came in. <laughs> so, and you missed it. But studying, but studying philosophy and religion because the Bible is really law. So it was a perfect foundation for law school. And I studied, I focused a lot on the Old Testament and world religions. And that was how I began to respect uh, faith. Some uh, theologians suggest that the various religions, whether it's uh, Judaism or Christianity or Hinduism and Islam, Confucianism, it's a beam of light that goes through a prism. And it comes out in different colors, but it all originates from one God, one gleam of light. And so I began to understand that you respect the atheist, the agnostic, the true believers, and to recognize that all people have spiritual value. So that's something that is, in, I think, influenced my thinking and how I look at the world. And tell so you us didn't about have the decision calling... to go. I'm go sorry. ahead, Patricia. I'm so sorry. I need to. I need to be um, more uh, better at planning this uh, with you, Bill. Um, tell us about the decision to go to law school. Did you already have in your mind that you might be pursuing politics? 
Uh, yes. And, you know, back in the 70s, it was almost a prerequisite to politics is to be or get a law degree. Mm -hmm. And I had been very active in student government association at Payne College. You know, I, every office you could imagine, I ran for it. And uh, that was the essence. And I met many important people there in Augusta, Georgia, uh, early on and working in campaigns for Pop Newman and some of the other people, Carrie Mays, who was the first black city council lady in Augusta. And going to law school, I think, was the pre the next step in preparing myself for a political career. But Patricia, you know, I I wanted I did not want to come back to Athens. I wanted to get an experience uh probably in a law school at a state capitol or somewhere near because I wanted to understand more about state politics and I wanted to go in a place where there were really racial challenges. And my top two uh choices were either Ole Miss or the University wow. of South Carolina. And I was accepted at Carolina. I worked for a great legislator there named uh, I.S. Levy Johnson. Uh, he was a legislator and I clerked for him for three years. And what, that was my first introduction to state politics. It was South Carolina state politics. Why seek out racial challenges? So many people would be inclined to do the opposite and kind of run away from those kinds of um, problems and prejudices back then, I'm sure, as well. You have to understand. You have to study and learn. And the more information and reconnaissance intellig intelligence you have, the better you're able to respond and progress in difficult situations. Uh, I speak to young people, particularly young people of color. You will be challenged. And that's the reality of it. And so what you have to do Bill mentioned I, I write uh, Black history, but, you know, I enjoy history and I focus on an aspect of it. And actually, a close reading of the books I've written is actually both. Uh, you know, it's not just Black history or white history. You find that Black and white Native Americans all coexisted. They existed in a parallel uh, dimensions. And so what I've tried to do is create a history that combines or lack of a better term, integrates the history uh, that we study. And so I enjoy all history. I focus on history that's been left out or marginalized or not fully appreciated. Um, what I'd like to do, uh, Mike and Patricia, is, is take a break right now. We got to get to our first break. And when we come back, let's talk about your political career, starting in 1986 when you won that seat in the general assembly. And we'll move forward from there and talk about some of the other uh, professional work you've done in your public service career. Um, we're talking to DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurmond as part of our the first in our series of conversations with thought leaders in Georgia. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Patricia Murphy and I are talking with Michael Thurmond, uh, now the DeKalb County CEO. Patricia Murphy, who I didn't introduce as properly as I should have at the beginning of the show, of course, is a political reporter and writes the Political Insider column for the AJC. You read it on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper itself. She also oversees the jolt at AJC.com. And as I said at the start of the show, there's no one I'd rather be talking to Michael Thurmond with than you, Patricia, so I'm glad we're together on this. Okay, so Michael, you entered the general term, you lost two races, finally won, and uh, were sworn in in 1987. I guess the first question is, to, to what end did you want to have a political career? And, and by that I mean there are people who go into public service, elected office, partly because they're eager for power. Others have a vision for the kind of uh, influence they hope they can have on changing policy 
in a government. Um, what was your motivation for wanting to take on the job of legislator back in the late 80s? I've always desired, and I mentioned being a preacher, doing speeches. You know, many little kids like to play cowboys and Indians. I always wanted to be a Georgia politician or a preacher slash politician. But my political career, I think, was defined by the losses in 82 and 84, more so than the victory mm. in 87. Uh, I ran first in 82. I lost. I ran again in 84 against a very prominent politician in Athens named Hugh Logan. Uh, he's a legendary figure. Mm. And yes, he is. After those, yeah, and two defeats before I was 30. And basically, my career was hanging in, you know, in the balance. And I began to really look at, because normally when you lose, you you really blame other people. You know, I, and I was wondering why, what's wrong with the voters in Athens? Can't they see? I got a law degree in a, in a blue suit and a red tie. What's wrong with me? <laughs> and one of the things that, <laughs> so, but Bill, something came to me and I, I tried everything. I registered all the black voters in the district that I could find. Uh, and 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 then one night it dawned on me that the district I was running in was a 66% majority white district, but I was focusing almost 100% of my energies on the communities I was most comfortable with. And so I had to make a decision. What was most powerful or compelling, my fears, my inhibition, or my hopes and dreams of becoming a member of the Georgia General Assembly? And... Uh, and I wish I could say it was a Martin Luther King moment, but really it was just I wanted to win. And so I had to reconfigure myself spiritually, politically and otherwise and get enough courage to literally cross the railroad tracks from East Athens to the broader side of the community to ask people to vote for me. And the third campaign we won. And that began to open my eyes to the fact, similar to what happened at Clark Central High School, is that I could serve people of all races, colors, and creeds. Because you remember, Bill, that during that time period, it was just almost unthinkable that a black person could be elected from a majority white legislative district in Georgia. And so many people told me that it would never happen. And so I'm stuck there with not enough black people to create a majority black district with this dream of going to the legislature. And let me bag up. The reason I chose the General Assembly was in the summer of 1976. Uh, right after um, college, I was at the library one Sunday afternoon at UGA's main library with my sister reading a thesis on postbellum Athens and read about two former slaves that had been elected to the Georgia General Assembly from Athens during Reconstruction, something I never heard, never heard. And literally, I was sitting there in the library with tears streaming down my eyes. It was just such a profound moment. So on my way back to Santa Creek, I told my sister, I'll be the next black man elected to the Georgia General Assembly for Mathen. And it, in those first two races, um, why didn't you reach out to the white electorate? Were you afraid to do it? Did you not want to do it? What was holding you back? And what was that? What changes did you make when you went into those communities? It was fear, uh, self-doubt, uh, just fear of being rejected because the person I was running against was very popular, very well-respected. And just unfamiliar with the terrain. And we see it a lot. I, I, it's a great story I tell that in the third race, when I finally decided to campaign in Homewood Hills, anybody know Athens, very upper income, all white community. My sister and I went going door to door. I decided that this was my last shot because three losses and you just done. And we knocked on the door one day and an elderly, well-dressed white lady came to the door. She was smiling. My sister was smiling. My sister handed her my brochure, Patricia. And then the smile turned to a frown. And then she saw my, my photograph and the frown turned to a scowl. And she threw it back at us, Bill. She said, you know, I don't care what you say. I'll never vote for one of them. They lie, they cheat, and they steal. 
And then you can, there's nothing you can ever say to get me to vote for one of those people. Well, I turned to walk away, heartbroken, telling myself I'll never cross these railroad tracks again. <laughs> and I turned and my sister was engaged in this argument with the lady. And I'm like, uh-oh, I'm going to jail today. My <laughs> sister and I, is not going to look good for this uh, uh, candidacy. And the lady said, and my sister says, ma'am, don't you know you can't judge my little baby brother simply by the color of his skin? And the lady says, let me look at this brochure again. And she says, I don't oh. care what color he is, I'll never vote for a damn lawyer, no matter what you say. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, your years in the legislature, um, before you <laughs> became a statewide constitutional officer, can, do you recall uh, votes that you took, uh, issues that were passed, that you are particularly proud of, things that, whether you sponsored them or not, what are the things that you think back on in terms of your legislative career with pride? Oh, the most important one was uh, the low-income tax credit. It became a compromise between, I got in the middle of a big fight, you may remember it, Bill, between Zell Miller, Governor Miller, Lieutenant Governor Miller initially, and the Speaker over uh, exempting food and groceries from the sales tax. And then the governor, lieutenant governor became governor and we went into a recession in 91. And so I came up with an idea of a low income tax credit that would re provide a refundable credit for senior citizens and low income Georgians. And that became the compromise between Murphy and Miller. And it's still on the books. And the last time I checked, we had generated over $500 million in tax relief for working, low-income working Georgians and senior citizens. That's my legacy uh, from the General Assembly. And tell us about the decision to run statewide, because that was a mountain uh, of immeasurable difficulty compared to <laughs> even running in a multiracial majority white district in Athens. And, and proud of that, after serving six years, I ran for Congress and uh, against Cynthia McKenna, it was Really, four of us I always like to say, and I came in fifth in a four-person race. I don't know how I managed that, but uh, so at that point, I'm in ex political exile back in Athens. And uh, one day, I get a call from uh, Jim Ledbetter to come see Governor Miller, and he offers me the job to be the defect director, which is the literally quote unquote the worst job in state government. Right? You go over there just to be had your reputation destroyed. But when I went over there, that was right during the welfare reform period when Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton and Clinton endorsed welfare reform. And so it became my job to come up with a welfare reform strategy for Georgia. And we called it work, for, work First Welfare Reform Without the Meanness. And we helped by providing job training, transitional Medicaid, transportation, and other things helped 90,000 people move from welfare to work. So it was, and so David Poltris decided to run the, for governor. He was the labor commissioner. Uh, just suddenly no one expected it. So the position was open and moving from helping people find jobs and training with defects was the perfect segue to running for labor commissioner. The other point about it is that there are 159 defects offices at that point in the state of Georgia. So it was a perfect footprint for a statewide race. You know, Michael, that your experience with defects um, really takes us into another aspect of your career, which is you really did come into broken agencies and find ways to make them better. I, I, if you don't mind, so you're elected in 98 to become labor commissioner? Correct. Was that what year it was? Okay, so yes. you become labor commissioner, and much like, I mean, it wasn't as it wasn't as big a morass as defects, but la the Department of Labor was troubled at that point, too. Um, it just wasn't doing its job, many people thought. Michael, I'm going to read you an email that literally came in while we're doing this show. Because it says something about you. I, I don't want to reveal the name of the woman who wrote it because she hasn't given me permission. She says, I am at this moment listening to Michael Thurman, and I want to tell you a story. I was employed by a small pharmaceutical company that went bankrupt. 
I was around 55 and had worked since I was 11 years old. Suddenly I was unemployed. I was so ashamed. When I went to the Department of Labor to apply, what I expected and what I was met with was entirely different. I expected to wait hours to be met with disrespect when reaching the end of the line. I was treated with respect and the process was smooth. This was all because of Mr. Thurman. And I recall when you transformed those district um, Department of Labor offices where people could go sit at com- computers and look at uh, jobs. And, and you just have had this extraordinary ability to take broken agencies and turn them around. Well, I really appreciate the kind words, but we had a great team. <laughs> so what the theory was to eliminate the unemployment office and create a statewide network of career centers. And what the lady describes is the transformation of the agency from unemployment office to career center, where people are respected. Uh, People who qualify for unemployment benefits have lost their job through Mm -hmm. no fault of their own. They deserve to be respected. And it goes back to, you know, I've sat in in welfare offices with my mother. Uh, Sometimes it just didn't work out and we had to get public assistance. So I know what it's like to sit there. And one of the things I've always said to my employees is put yourself in that position. How would you want to be treated if you needed support or assistance from the government? And transforming the uh, network of career centers uh, to help people get access to training and, and information and job and, and, and skill sets. It was just an amazing moment for me. Something you said, though, be what's the the cartoon character with peanuts who got the cloud over his head, who always walks around with the cloud. What's his name? The little kid. Charlie Brown. What what is it, Patricia? Is it Charlie Brown? Yeah, it's Charlie Brown, but one of the characters always has a cloud over his head. Is it okay, go ahead. Go ahead. (laughs) I think it's Pigpen, isn't it? (laughs) It could be Pig. I don't remember. But (laughs) when I went to DFAC's welfare reform, Labor Department was the Great Recession. The Cab School District on the threshold of losing accreditation. The Cab County. So I don't know whether I'm fortunate or whether I'm cursed, but I enjoy the fact of having challenging opportunities or just even to be a senior at Clark Central High School. I could have graduated the year before or the year after, but that senior year was a pivotal moment. So that's been one of my blessings, really that I've always had the opportunity to lead during moments of crisis and great challenge. And along with being an executive in that capacity, then you also did mount a run for United States Senate. Tell us about that decision and that campaign. You were also running against Johnny Isaacson, who was a a incredibly formidable opponent. But what was the thought process to get into that job? Yeah, that was a very questionable political decision. There were many there were many people who would agree with that, Mr. Thurman. <laughs> <laughs> but Senator Dyson and I were friends. I mean, he and I, I modeled when I was chairman of the Georgia Legislative Black Caucus, when he was chairman of the Republican Caucus in the Georgia House of Representatives. Uh, When I was there, I think there were about 25 Republicans and about 27, 28 African-Americans. That seems like centuries ago, but that was the world. And I would watch Johnny and how he engaged and sparred and battled politically Speaker Murphy, but it was always respectful and Mm -hmm. it was always uh, uh, an intense battle but they always show great deference and respect. It wasn't the ugliness that defines politics. So I kind of, you know, created my strategy similar to what Johnny had. And John Isaacson was a friend of my sister. They both served on the state board of education when uh, he was the chair of the board of education. But uh, I felt that at that point, my time, one of the things you have to leave office when people are still applauding. One of the big mistakes people make, whether it's in politics or life, in the private sector, I teach my daughter, lead the stage while the audience is still applauding. Don't stay too long. (laughs) So it was time for me to lead the 
Georgia Department of Labor and tried to expand my horizons. Running for the U.S. Senate was a calling. Uh, Johnny beat me horribly. I think I lost by 19 points. But I learned a lot in that race. And sometimes, you know, you don't judge candidates simply by vote totals because ultimately history casts the final ballot. And oftentimes through defeat, uh, you learn to fail forward. On that campaign, I went to down to Columbus, Georgia, to see a man named Jim Butler, asking him for money mm -hmm. to support my campaign. People, everybody know Jim, one of the most successful lawyers in, in the country, he and uh, uh, Joel Wooten. So Jim said, look, I, I'm gonna write you a check. I'm gonna max you out. Well, I think it was $5,000. He said, but you know you're going to lose this race. I said, no, I don't know I'm going to lose. He said, oh, yeah, you're going to lose, and I'm going to support you. <laughs> but he said, after you lose, you call me because I want you to come work in my law firm. And so working at then Butler Wooten was a turning point for me just personally in terms of my own financial well-being. But sometimes, even in defeat, if you're smart and if you're open-eyed about it, you can find progress and opportunity and ultimately victory. So that raise put me in contact with, G with Jim Butler that got me a great job that changed my life significantly. I got to get to a final break of the show. Uh, we'll be back in just a moment. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Michael Thurman, uh, you may have been thinking about a character from Peanuts that had a cloud over his head, uh, but we just got a note from a listener who says, you know, Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh was always walking around uh, 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 down about <laughs> life. Around. And we got an email from someone who said, I voted for Mike Thurman in the 1980s. I did not know until I started listening to Political Rewind that Michael was a black man, it wouldn't have mattered if I did know, just a great person and deserves to be the first highlighted on your uh, shows about uh, uh, leaders. So, Michael, in, in this little time that we have, man, we have some time, I, if I could, I'd love to talk to you about some broader uh, aspects of how you see your own leadership and then the, what you see for our future. Um, if you had to distill... If you were going to do a PowerPoint on the most important aspects of leadership, can you distill that to just several points? One, listening. Uh, often people see politicians or leaders as articulating or speaking in the news or in, in front of crowds. The most important skill set that a leader should have and must have is the ability to listen and not just listen to people you agree with, but they have the for the courage to listen to people who you might disagree with and hopefully to gain something from the conversation. So the key thing to successful leadership is the ability to listen. And um, in hearing you talk throughout this conversation, it strikes me, and I said this actually at the beginning, that Michael Thurman does things his own way. You really don't do talking points. You don't do party. Um, you certainly support your party, but you sort of don't do um, party platforms writ large without sort of considering all of the environment at the same time. Um, what's your assessment of politics today? It's such a big question, but why are you so different from so many, um, particularly legislators in D.C. who are sort of just following the party path. How do you assess the, the landscape right now where we are? I read once, it was a quote, extreme partisanship is the last refuge of a scoundrel. When all else fails, whether it's my qualifications or my achievements, I can always revert back to extreme partisanship, tribalism. And 
you know, I, I, I think I probably would be more successful if I adhered more to the more traditional uh, political uh, concepts. I don't, because at the end of the day, you have to look yourself in the mirror, you look yourself in the face, and you have to be happy with what you see, win, lose, or draw. And I know, look, you're going to lose sometimes, and things, you will come up short sometimes, but you have to accept that. Uh, at the end of the day, I just want people to believe that somehow I, that I left it a little better than how I found it. And that's worth it to me. Michael, you turned 70, I think, in January. Uh, is yes. DeKalb County the final the final stop in your elective career? Or could you imagine yourself uh, running for another office down the road? I've said it to my wife and Micaiah, my daughter, that if I never serve another day, if it ends today, uh, I will be satisfied and at peace uh, with my service. Uh, one of the things being a school superintendent taught me that I did not fully appreciate is that you just can't always focus on the next election. Sometimes it's more important to focus on the next generation. If the opportunity presents itself, I'll take it. I wasn't planning on being the CEO. Uh, Lee May called me and said, look, I'm not running. Will you run for this office? I wasn't, you know, I was back at Butler Wooten at that point trying to make some money. And uh, so I'm like, okay. I'll go. So we'll see what happens. And okay. So speaking of that call that you got, I was, I remember being shocked seeing that you were going to even run for DeKalb CEO because you had been a statewide official. And most people um, take these jobs as sort of um, stepping stones to a certain direction, higher office. Um, but it seems like you're really taking care of the people in your own backyard right now. How, how different is it to serve at that local level? And is it more gratifying than the jobs that you've had previously? It's such a hard mm. job. It's more challenging than statewide politics, to be quite honest with you. Yeah. Because at the state level, you lobbing missiles at your opponents. Here is hand-to-hand -hand combat. You know, you're tied you're at the risk. But I love DeKalb County. And DeKalb County has a major role to play in the future growth and development of Georgia. Uh, it's been a very positive experience, the diversity and the dynamism. All of this is great. It's been a great experience uh, being here in the cab, and most importantly, to be CEO during the pandemic. Uh, we were able to really impact the lives of tens of thousands of people in a way that would not be possible but for uh, having served in this position. So, um, of course, one of the other reasons it's hard to be a CEO of the cab county is you've got constituents who live there like me, who like send you a text saying, hey, they didn't pick up the garbage today. What the heck is going on? But my point being, you are truly accountable to individuals across the county in a way that you never are in a statewide office. Absolutely. And you do call me, Bill. But I love it. <laughs> I, I love it because I, I, the, the theory is wake up every day trying to help somebody solve a problem, no matter what it is, make someone's day. And you'll be surprised when you pick up the garbage, how well that's received from someone who's had garbage sitting on the on the curb. And, and, and by the way, that was a joke because we do have good garbage pickup here in DeKalb County. All right. Here, yeah, we're we running out of time. one every now and then. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I know. But Mike, what do you see as our future as a country? We are so divided politically. January 6th uh, showed us that we're one step away from people tearing down the walls of government. Um, are you optimistic about where we're headed as a country, as a state? Tell us a little bit about what you see for the future. There's no way I can not be optimistic. You all have had as a guest, a young man who, until he was 16, was raised in a house without indoor running water, without an indoor bathroom. <laughs> and to sit here now, CEO of a $1.6 billion corporation, I'm always optimistic. The American dream, America, is the idea. You know, we have these moments, but if you study history, America always rises to the challenge. We always do, not as quickly and maybe not as forthrightly, but the art of justice is long and it always been, arc of eternity is long and it always been towards justice. That's what Dr. King said, that arc always been towards justice. 
And Patricia, what would I think you, we have time for advice? one last question. Okay. What advice would you give to that senior in high school? If you could go back and talk to him today, what would you say to him right now? Never lose faith. Never give up on your dreams. Uh, never, ever give up on your dreams. And never allow the other people to define your own uh, uh, skill sets, your, your own hopes. Just keep believing, keep working, and keep having the faith in yourself, your family, and the nation as a whole. Um, Mike, we're almost out of time, but I do want to give you one uh, last opportunity here. We you know, People can go on Amazon and look at the books you've written about leaders from Athens who have never, black leaders who have not been recognized in the past the way they um, should have been. Um, your history of of, of the anti-slavery uh, movement in Georgia is another. But you've been working on a book on James Oglethorpe, the first colonial governor of Georgia for quite a while. Um, and one of the reasons you focused on him is because he was an abolitionist governor. Um, when is that book? Is that book set for publication? Yeah, in January 24, he became an abolitionist. He was anti-slavery when he was actually the colonial uh the founder of Georgia. It's an unexplored part of our history. But Bill, thank you for discovering me on the back bench as a freshman <laughs> legislator. None of this would have happened I... if you hadn't put me on TV that <laughs> Michael Thurman, it's been such a joy uh, to have you on the show today. Patricia Murphy, thank you for being part of it. And Michael, yes, I do feel like we've known each other for a very long time, and you are someone <laughs> whose whole philosophy of life I've always had great admiration for. Thank you for being here. We're out of time for today. We're back tomorrow with another brand new show. We'll talk about what's happening in political news. Until then, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care and stay healthy, everybody. <laughs>